Recovery Sort Of is a podcast where we discuss recovery and addiction topics from the perspective of people living in long-term recovery. This podcast does not intend to represent the views of any particular group, organization, or fellowship. The views expressed here are solely the opinion of its contributors. Be advised there may be strong language or topics of an adult nature. My name's Billy. I'm a person in long-term recovery, and I'm here with Jason, a guy in long-term recovery. And today we have Jessica with Addiction Policy Forum. We'd like to talk a little bit about the different challenges affecting the recovery community at this point, some things that are going on to, to change some of the policies, and basically access to treatment. That seems to be a big barrier in our area and talk about some things we can do to, to get access to treatment. So Jessica, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, why you got involved in this work and what currently you're doing? Sure. Thanks again for having me this morning too. I really appreciate it. I have been doing this work since 1992. I'm an impacted family member. Both my parents struggled with heroin use disorder and I've lost both of them. So this has really kind of been a personal, started off as a, a real personal focus for me. Um, other family members struggled with addiction and I've lost way too many people. So I started Addiction Policy Forum to help other families and patients in crisis and try to change what it feels like when this disease hits your family. We've been around since 2015 and we have chapters in, in almost 50 states and really trying to change fundamentally some of the key pieces that I think need to be improved for our space. Nice. And what is basically the goal or the mission of Addiction Policy Forum? We hope to end addiction as a healthcare problem in America. Well, that's a big, yeah, that's one of the big, uh, I guess, barriers to access to treatment. I know I was on your website kind of looking around. There's a lot of videos and things. Uh, you have a really informative YouTube channel with a lot of videos and things on there. One of them kind of explains how addiction should be viewed more as a disease. That's always sort of been the debate of whether it's a disease or a moral deficiency from the 12-step fellowship point of view, we've always looked at it as a disease, like a physical, mental, spiritual disease. But on the website, I guess it does a pretty short video on explaining, I guess, the science behind why addiction is a disease. Would you mind kind of explaining that or breaking that down just a little bit for us? And one of the, the sort of things that we try to do is translate the science. I sort of felt like, you know, for many years I've been doing this work, we have all this new knowledge and science and new data, and then we have all of us out here, patients and families, and no one is sort of translating or building a bridge between the two, right? So we've made tremendous advancements and developments over the last 30 years, but there needs to be a better pipeline to get that information into the hands of those who really need it. So when it comes to addiction as a healthcare condition, I think that it's really important for a number of reasons. It helps individuals understand um, how to take care of their health. It helps families engage in treatment more quickly. It helps healthcare providers improve their responses, their compassion and their responsiveness to this disease. So we really tried to break down the, the science to, to get it out there to the, the general public. Um, a, a disease is sort of anything that affects an organ or a system in your body, and it affects the well-being of the individual. 
Well, addiction definitely fits the bill, right? It affects your well-being. We know from the science that's been developed that it does affect your brain, but we also know that it can be prevented and we know that you can recover from addiction. So getting that out there is really important. We've also tried to break down and we have another um, series of videos to break down how it affects the brain and explain sort of the symptoms. And we we know uh, that addiction can change your priorities. It can change your behavior and even working with some of our folks in recovery to understand why that happens and is is important to do. There's so much self-stigma as well as societal stigma that exists. And if you understand the science, I think we can do a better job of treating, preventing and recovering from the illness. Yeah. And I think at least for myself, from like the 12 step fellowship perspective, like it's kind of one of those things where even amongst other members in the fellowship, you sometimes find yourself debating, like, is it a disease? Is it not a disease? Does that even really matter? For myself, I think a lot of times it was easy to just say, well, it doesn't really matter whether it, we consider it a disease or not. If I just follow sort of the 12-step model, do what I'm supposed to do, I'll stay clean and recovery will work. So I guess from the 12-step fellowship model, that's just a fun thing you can talk about. But from a like a policy position, why does it matter whether we consider it a disease or not? I think it matters because it's important that we activate our healthcare system to respond to uh, addiction and not our criminal justice system. So when we recognize, acknowledge, and build systems of care that see this as other chronic health conditions like diabetes, like cancer, like heart disease, we will build the infrastructure and the systems and the funding to intervene and treat addiction better, like other health conditions, instead of haphazardly or external. You know, if you think about it, so much of treatment to this disease that is very prevalent, right? When you have 20 million people struggling with addiction, that is a large population here in the States, right? But when you don't, we, you don't sort of necessarily think, oh, well, I'm going to go see this, uh, my primary care physician and get checked out or get this assessment or get my loved one, my son, my daughter, my mom, my brother, my sister, right? We have a, a treatment system that is largely external to healthcare that is privately funded, which really cuts off access to folks that don't have means, which needs to be fixed. Um, but we also have these myths and mythologies that addiction is a moral failing, a character flaw. Well, you chose to do this to yourself. All of this ridiculousness that reduces the compassion that we see across the board in how we look at this illness, how we look at, at addiction as a chronic health condition, but it also sort of will permeate into healthcare providers, criminal justice, education systems, employers. And so when we understand it as a health condition, we understand that you intervene early, just like any other health condition, right? And you treat it and you follow up and you manage a chronic health uh, issue with the support of your family, your friends and your network, we will be in a better place. Yeah, and that sort of ties into another sort of interesting thing that I saw on the website. I know in, uh, like say, in 12-step in language or whatever, we have a sort of cliche that you can't really help people until they hit their bottom and, you know, you just have to kind of wait. And I know for me as an individual, like I maybe have misinterpreted that sometimes to sort of mean, well, I'm not really going to help someone unless they really ask for help or reach out for help or any of that. And I know there was some information on the site about not waiting for people to hit their bottom and what things we can do for early intervention or early prevention. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important that we sort of when you follow a medical model, like if you have known anyone who or even your listeners have known anyone who's been diagnosed with cancer, what is the first thing that you ask or you think of? 
how early did you catch it? What stage right, are you what in? Stage, yeah. Right. Well, we have stages, right, or levels of severity for addiction, and setting up sort of a societal construct that we're going to wait for it to get as worse as it possibly can before we treat it is just not smart. About 90% of those who struggle with addiction, um, they develop the illness, the disorder in their adolescent years or young adult years, but we've built even a treatment system that is mostly built for adults. So by construct, we actually have set up the whole system to wait for it to get much worse before we engage. I, I have lots of theories and thoughts on why that is. It's really uncomfortable talking to someone about their drug or alcohol use. None of us like to do it. I run an addiction nonprofit and it probably is on my bottom list of things that I like to do when I have a friend or a family member that you have to engage with to talk about their drinking, it's awkward, right? It's uncomfortable. We're taught to not talk about this. You don't talk about money, religion, or don't talk about anyone's you know, drinking or alcohol use, right? So I think we fall back on this when in, in fact, what we should be doing is engaging with people we care about. So we intervene at those earlier stages or levels. You know, there's a level one through three um, when it comes to substance use disorder. And that's in the DSM-5, sort of the, the big book on, on um, mental health. And we usually wait until that level three, that stage four cancer, that level three of severity for addiction, which means it's gotten worse. It's done not just more damage to your body, but it's done more damage to your, to your life, to your job, to your loved ones, to your personal relationships. And so when we start to build the skills as a community to intervene with people sooner, I think that is the best case scenario, right? We, we put out this guide this year called Navigating Addiction and Treatment, a guide for families. And we even put in a whole chapter on a four-step process to have the awkward conversation and talk to someone you care about, about their drinking and drug use, which I think is, is really important. And I can tell from experience, there's times that I probably should have intervened sooner um, throughout my life with the people that I've loved who struggled with this illness. Um, I think I've gotten better over time, but even for me so many years later, it is, it's, it's awkward and uncomfortable. And when you sort of rely on, oh, they'll get this, they'll have that moment when they hit their bottom, their rock bottom, and they'll come to it on their own. Too often that's death. Too often that's such severe consequences to that individual. And it doesn't have to wait for something so severe. In essence, we can lift the bottom by doing a better job of taking care of those that we love and saying something when we're worried. Right. So just for my own interest, I know there's some debate over whether if you've seen the show Intervention, they have the show Intervention that was on, I think, A&E for a while that did these sort of interventions where they sat a family member down and said, if you don't get help now, we're going to, I hate to say it this way, but like turn our backs on you and abandon you <laughs> and that sort of thing. And at least from what I understand, that model isn't quite as popular now. We don't really do that so much. But what are some other steps we can take, in your opinion, that would be like early intervention steps to sort of encourage or push someone that isn't maybe saying they're ready to stop or they say, I don't really know if I want to stop? You know, what are some things we can do to, to sort of encourage them or push them that way? No, I don't think that ultimatums are the way to go, nor should you bring a camera crew and make it into something sort of dramatic or, you know, traumatizing for the individual. It's a little embarrassing and there's still way too much stigma around addiction. So that's not what we would recommend. I think it's anything from what you feel comfortable with. It's a conversation. It's making sure you are working from a place of love and care. Like, you know, hey, 
I, I really care about you and I'm, I'm a little concerned about your drinking. For example, last night when I felt like you got, you know, really out of control and you're really sick this morning, I'd really like to talk to you about next steps and maybe getting an assessment. I think if you plan your conversation, if you are prepared and come from that place of love, and if they're not ready, then they're not ready. Sometimes it takes five, six, seven conversations. If you don't want to talk to the person, write a letter, send an email. They're not ready, then come back to it. And if there are other people in their life that are sending similar messages, you don't know what the constellation of nudges is, right? It's more of a nudge than a push, right? And um, so they know when they are at that point that they're looking to seek support or ask for help, they know who to come to because you've put it out there that you're worried about them and you want to help them with the next steps. Yeah, and I know... Your organization does a lot of work with families, not just families that have lost people, but also families trying to get their kids or loved ones into treatment. What are some of the, I guess, the biggest challenges for parents navigating that line of, I hate to use the word tough love, but you know, you don't want to enable your child to continue to use, but you also don't want to just throw them out on the street. Like, like, is there any good information or advice for those parents in your experience? What could help them sort of navigate that area? We wrote a whole chapter on this in Navigating Addiction because I'm so annoyed that for some reason this term enabling or enabler has somehow like attached itself to our illness, but that's just not how it works. We can either help people or enable them for lots of different things, right? If you love someone who's struggling with gambling, do you suggest that you go to a casino when you want to hang out the next time? No, oh, that's sort of enabling, um, not a, a very sort of supportive plan for their uh, gambling uh, struggles. If you know someone who is diabetic or struggling with heart disease or has had major heart surgery, are you suggesting that you you know, meet up for a really unhealthy meal? Or are you suggesting that, hey, we should go for a walk together if we're going to connect? I think that there are ways for us to look at this as other health conditions. And are we being helpful or are we enabling behaviors and traditions or habits that are unhealthy for your loved one? And this is a, this is a struggle for families, parents in particular, even siblings and others in a family system. When you have to really break down your own relationship and your own decisions, are you providing money? Are you letting them use around you when you're uncomfortable and worried about their, their health? And so when you start to break that down, set out really clear, healthy boundaries, um, but let them know that you care for them and you want to work with them should they be ready or if they're um, seeking treatment, being supportive of that. Um, but it's really about healthy boundary setting and really analyzing your own behavior and whether or not you're being a helper or an enabler with that disease. Yeah. And I've, I've worried about that. I have teenage children right now. And of course, it's always that fear of, you know, obviously the genetics, what we know about genetics getting passed on. And Jason's got teenage kids as well. And, and you sort of, in our heads, I'll talk with my wife about like, what would we do if our kids started using and then got to a point where they were really struggling? And there isn't an easy answer, even being involved in recovery for as long as we've been. I've been in recovery 20 years. Uh, Jason's been 17. My wife's been 31, I think. And you still don't have the answers as to what you do with your child or a loved one when they're struggling. But I do know for myself, like I look at my experience with my parents, like they were not addicts. So, you know, I was raised in like a loving household with two parents that cared and they never threw me out or turned their back on me. They always tried to help me get into treatment. They helped me when I wanted help. And I attribute that a lot to 
being one of the things that, you know, when I was finally ready, when I finally did what I needed to do, like I found that to be really beneficial that I had these parents that I felt loved and supported me and would be there for me through that. So I do think it's important as parents that we don't turn our back on our kids, you know, when they're struggling or give them these ultimatums. I think that's quite dangerous. It is. I think one of the challenges for what you just said, and I thought it was beautiful the way you laid it out, but what you know, my belief is, and what I think we sort of know somewhat, is that many of these people that are using are coming from places that aren't healthy to begin with. Like that has a lot to do with why they're using already is the trauma in the households. We talked about ACEs a couple of episodes ago, the adverse childhood experiences. And so to send these people back into those same places and talk about, well, is your your family or your loved ones enabling you? That might be the only bond they had with you and they might not be able to change. And so coming from a place where, yeah, hey, you got two healthy parents that are deciding their best whether to, you know, what behaviors are enabling, that's great information. But coming from a place where your parents were your trauma or maybe you used with them and your brothers and sisters and that's the only relationship you have they're not going to encourage you, hey, let's hang out and have a healthy diet today. Like the, the only way they're going to, you're going to see them is to use with them. Yeah, that is very true. And there's lots of dysfunction that we can find in homes that uh, struggle with addiction. I mean, this is the same for even my parents. This is intergenerational substance use disorder. My grandma is from an Indian reservation in Michigan, and I don't think we can count the generations of addiction that we've dealt with. And then she had the same issues at home and in a way sort of drug and alcohol use starting really young was her escape and a coping mechanism for abuse at, in, in the home and alcoholism and a lot of dysfunction. So it becomes really heartbreaking when we can repeat the same things that created so much heartache for us in our own homes. And it is really hard to, to break those patterns that exist. For some individuals where your house, your parents are part of the trauma, it's also really difficult to make decisions that limit your access to them if it's unhealthy for you. That's when a lot of counseling is, is important. And I think we need to acknowledge that building that supportive network when the family can't be involved in that, that's really hard for our patients when that's what, what's ahead of them. And we need to offer them extra levels of support. Absolutely. And the book is called Navigating Addiction? Navigating Addiction and Treatment. It's on our website and soon on Amazon Kindle, which is kind of exciting. Awesome. Is it going to come to Audible? I love I love listening. <laughs> <laughs> I'll check on it. I'll check on it. Yeah. This is sort of a labor of love for me because when addiction like hits your family or you're, you're worried about someone, there's this like crisis moment where you're like, you want, if, they, if someone reaches out and they're ready and you want to help them right now, but it's really difficult to navigate this disease. It was 2000, so 20 years ago, my dad reached out um, and wanted help. Um, and he struggled with heroin and crack cocaine. He lived in, uh, was homeless on the streets of Los Angeles. And like every year I would like strike out to find him and feed him and clothe him for a day and, you know, have sort of like little conversations about, you know, if you ever want to get healthy or if I can ever help you, if you you know want to go into treatment and you want something new, I'm here, dad. Um, you can always call me. And it, it was sort of this like annual pilgrimage that I would make to try to, to find him and make sure he was okay and offer help. Um, it was hard to keep in touch with him in the interim. And then in 2000, I got that call. I remember like every moment of the, getting that phone call from him. And he called me Jessa Marie, Jessa Marie. 
I'm ready. It's time. And it was like my, like my whole life I've been waiting to receive that call. And it was so hard to find a place that would take him to find what was good treatments. I was far away. I mean, I, I kind of worked, I think I was actually, you know, working, um, with the White House drug czar's office and at the time. So I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here sort of involved professionally in this. And then I get this call I've been waiting for, and I had no idea what to do. You don't understand the terms and all the abbreviations. You don't know what treatment works best for what people. You don't know what good treatment is versus bad. Everyone's, you know, trying to get me to sign a check or take out a loan or for- ask if I own my home, right? So there's so, there's so many bad actors. And I just remember feeling so overwhelmed and lost and scared because there was this opportunity and I wanted to help him. And it felt like you didn't have a lot of time because you don't, you don't know how long, how big that window is. And unfortunately, um, he died a few months later. He'd been living on the streets for a long time and had lots of complications because of his addiction. But it struck me and stayed with me that we should change what that experience is because that's not what families feel when they're looking for ways to treat diabetes or cancer. So why should we deserve any less? So is that your goal with getting addiction more recognized as a medical issue or a disease, a disease model? Because uh, Billy had mentioned this this morning and I was like, well, we kind of already do recognize it in the disease model. That's why we treat it. It's in, like you said, the DSM-5. So I was kind of a little lost on the goal. But then when you were describing it, it sounded more like you wanted it to become more incorporated in the medical field because the treatment entity is so separate and so not regulated which is a huge issue. So is that like kind of your purpose of of even furthering the disease model that you want more regulation in treatment and you don't want people saying, hey, come here and pet dogs out back three times a day and our, you know, success rate is seven out of eight people never get high again. Like you want actual evidence-based treatment and more functionality and it's only going to cost you thirty thousand dollars a day (laughs) (laughs) or it's going to cost you exactly how much i can get a loan for you to pay over to me right right whatever i've been there down that road i mean i i don't think we have a singular purpose in that realm i think we want better treatment we want better prevention we want better recovery support we want better support for families we want to prevent this illness and survive it we want to have fewer casualties and fewer families that go through this. And you're right, evidence-based treatment for anyone who needs it is one of the most important things we can do, right along with preventing this illness from beginning in the first place, right? So we do, we you know continue to do a lot on prevention because even when you were talking earlier about you both having teenagers, I have three teenage sons. And so making sure we prevent the onset of this illness and protect against it is, is equally important to us. This episode has been brought to you by Voices of Hope, Inc., a nonprofit grassroots recovery community organization located in Maryland. Voices of Hope is made up of people in recovery, family members, and allies. Together, members strive to protect the dignity and respect of those that use drugs and those in recovery by advocating for treatment, support resources, and mentoring. Please visit us at www.voicesofhopececilmd.org and consider donating to our cause.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I got to be honest, if you want prevention, I don't know if going to the medical field is the route to go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Only because they seem to do more Band-Aid work than, than prevention of anything. So preventing substance use disorders is really about building your protective factors and you know understanding what risk factors. We do a lot of work on ACEs as well, adverse childhood experiences, and sort of balancing that with risk and protection. We have a project that's coming out this Wednesday, actually, on teen prevention strategies and some tools and information for both parents and teachers. So for me at home, preventing, I I know that I have likely passed on a genetic predisposition to addiction to my children. I don't actually know how many generations I have behind me, but my parents and my grandparents and great-grandparents at a minimum have all struggled with the substance use disorder. So um, about uh, half of um, individuals who have a substance use disorder today have have that genetic predisposition, the hereditary part. So I think we can be smarter. We can be honest. I, my kids know that they have risk that they've inherited from my side of the family. So they know that they have to protect themselves a little bit more than maybe a peer. I really focus on age of onset, that um, the age at which you start using alcohol or drugs is a huge risk factor for developing addictions. So me as a parent pushing that back as far as I possibly can will give my kids a protection that is really important, particularly because of the genetic predisposition piece. And then we have some things coming out in the, it's called the opioid prevention campaign, but it's not just about opioids. It's just people only talk about opioids when in reality they should be talking about alcohol, marijuana, and tobacco, but we can use that to get people's attention and then give them real information. But even in our house, I have very clear expectations about alcohol and drug use. And I don't really care if their friends are doing it because my kids should know that their risk level is different. We also practice refusal skills. So there is like literally role play and back and forth discussions about how they respond to risky situations and offers of alcohol and drugs, which I know are coming at them because it's just the society that we live in. And it's just so prevalent. And, you know, think about it, even for us as adults, when you're like, you know, not prepared for a question that comes at you, we can default to yes. So maybe when I was asked to be PTA president, instead of defaulting to yes, probably should have thought that through on time commitment if I really could really handle this. But you, we just had this like people pleasing yes reflex that was at the end of the world. No, a little time consuming and maybe not the best choice in terms of you know, me having extra time. But when it's an offer of alcohol or drugs, the stakes are higher. So making sure your kids know that it's coming. So if they're going someplace and socializing, even in the car, we're going to do a refresher. I get eye rolls. All right. They think I'm very embarrassing and annoying because that's my job to be embarrassing and annoying. Um, But I remind them that these questions or prompts may come and I want them to be prepared. You know, there's like categories of refusal skills. There's like a whole, there's, there's science behind this, but we don't ever tell parents that, right? So you have like the declarative. It's just like, no, I don't do that crap, right? Which is my oldest child. He's a declarative statement guy. 
my middle is an excuse guy. Oh, no, no. My mom is so nuts about that stuff. She drug tests me. Oh, I don't really drug test him. But he's an excuse giver. Or no, I have a huge game coming. I can't do that. No, I got in trouble last weekend for partying too hard. No, he didn't. But it gives him an excuse. He saves face. I don't know about my youngest yet. He's just 12. We'll see which category um, he's in. You can also like turn the tables. But there's real strategies out there for us to help our kids prepare for those situations. And they might come, right? That My kids are likely going to drink alcohol at some point in their lives. But the closer I can pu- push that back to when their brains are more matured and less likely um, to sort of dig in and develop an addiction, the better for them. Where did you find that information on how to identify each of their different, like the excuse giving and, and that? Like, is that just something you've learned through your career of counseling or is that information you can find somewhere for as a parent? Yeah, we've, we're putting out a two-pager and a video on practicing refusal skills with your kids. So I'll email it to you and it'll be on our website um, as of Wednesday morning. Um, The science comes from the National Institute on Drug Abuse at the NIH, as well as several universities who've done amazing work here. Stanford's done great work, Harvard. um, There's all of these prevention scientists. And the problem is, it's that same bridge I spoke about. We have this great science on prevention. You have all of us parents of teenagers over here who are worried. And we need to build the bridge for folks to understand and that information to be translated so we can use it better. And that's what we you know, like to do. We have a, a research team and a translation team that looks for the best and latest science and make sure that it's understandable to the rest of us. Yeah, and that's one of those things. That's, I think, a not so direct consequence of the stigma. It's like as a parent, you almost have to take on this attitude of like, oh, my kid could never become an addict. You know, I'm a I'm a better parent than that. They're better kids than that, that sort of thing. And so indirectly, we don't educate ourselves or do the research. I mean, that information to me should be public information available in high schools to parents, you know, but at least we're in a rural county and it seems like even at the high school or middle school level, which is probably really where we should be addressing kids is at the middle school level, there is a resistance to even talk about addiction possibilities with kids at that point. It's just say no and we don't do that. And that's that. Drugs are bad. Yeah, drugs are bad and (laughs) and we don't do that. And I think, you know, until we can kind of overcome that stigma and say, yes, quote unquote, bad kids get into drugs, but just as many good kids. I mean, I was a A student. I had scholarships to schools and played sports and all those things. And yet at 17, I was still, you know, really gone down a rabbit hole of addiction, you know, and I didn't fit the stereotypical, you know, what you think an addict should be. So when it was time for me to go to my parents for help, you know, they just pretty much called the insurance company and sent me to some high dollar treatment, which I was grateful for. It was great. It was like a summer camp. (laughs) But, uh, you know, I don't know. They spent a lot of money and I don't know that I walked away from there a whole lot better. I think overcoming some of that stigma that, you know, addiction happens to everyone like it's it's it doesn't discriminate. It's it's a thing that everyone's vulnerable to in some way. Yeah. I I totally agree with you. I think that we have this sort of knee jerk. Oh, I don't have to worry about that. My kid's good. Well, that doesn't mean that just because you're good, you don't ever have to worry about diabetes or cancer, heart disease, skin cancer. I mean, the, the list goes on. We protect our children from health conditions in a variety of ways, and this should be no different. And I think that the, you're right, the stigma is probably at the 
at the root of that. And I, I think there's also a, a little bit of denial in terms of some of our strategies and habits as a culture, right? Because kids do not, for the most part, experiment and initiate use with heroin or fentanyl or methamphetamines. They're starting with alcohol, tobacco, and marijuana. And alcohol is still so pervasive, even maybe in the home, and not realizing how that can negatively impact your child if they begin using alcohol too early is something I also don't think we've taught parents adequately. Imagine if the heroin companies had done what the alcohol companies did and put out a study that just a little bit of heroin every day is good for you. Just one glass (laughs) of heroin. It's incredible. Yeah, I know, right? Right. So with the prevention idea, which is great that there are some protective factors, because often we look at addiction as something that needs to be treated after it's there. We really don't talk very much about the prevention. I'm curious of what your hopeful goal and what your realistic goal is, because to me, the prevention is probably not going to be something you get from your doctor. That's going to be something that, you know, I guess there's the alternatives you can give it to parents who are interested in helping prevent it for their kids, or you could possibly put it in schools. I just don't see that being realistic. Uh, There's so much pushback. So what is your what is your hopeful goal with the prevention information? And what is your realistic goal? Like, how do you plan to use this to actually assist the population? You know, I I think. I think that's a great way to break it down between hopeful and realistic. Like as an example, we put out this, I thought really cool video and all of the science-based information on, you know, vaping and preventing vaping and intervening early if someone is, is vaping nicotine or marijuana. And I thought, we'll just give it away for free. And every school in America is going to use it because this is a big issue. Eh, it's not exactly how it went, right? Um, so I think we need to be pragmatic about how we get prevention information out. We're focusing on parents now. And I also think we need to focus on parents of younger children. You know, when you're, we don't hear this uh, from your pediatrician or at school or from whatever, you know, parent network you're a part of when you have a middle schooler or an elementary age child, which is probably the appropriate time to start initiating this and not expecting to catch a bunch of parents who all have you know, 16 and 17 year olds, I think we need to move much earlier into the continuum to teach parents that this is something you can protect against and you should. I would love it in that sort of ideal. My hope is that there are prevention messages and moments that come from not just the parent, but from the schools and teachers, from the pediatrician and healthcare, from other caring adults, whether it's your coach or your 4-H club leader or whatever this is, if you work with adolescents and young adults, teenagers, to understand that we can protect against this disease. And sometimes very, very small moments of setting expectations can make all the difference. Super interesting. I I wonder almost if we need, I, I mean, I just look at it and it'd be great to educate parents, but a lot of times parents are not where, and especially in the teenage years, getting their information. It'd be great to have this information in schools, but again, kids really don't want information from their teachers. They, they dislike school by that point in life. So I'm like, do we need TikTok and YouTube influencers that combat the other messages? Like, right. I, I mean, I can tell you right now, my daughters want these little hexagon mirrors and different colored lights and these pink collage things for their walls. And all this came from people online who are, it's like the newest trend. It's what they're all doing. So maybe if we were, I know they'll probably never be as popular as the people who are doing that. But if we could get younger voices that are actually talking about this kind of stuff and influencing people too, like, 
teenagers aren't going to tune into our podcast. Not, we're old white dudes, right? Like it's just not going to happen. But do we need that younger role model, that younger hip person to, to kind of get this information out there? Yeah, I think the more messengers we have in this space, the better. You know, our, our, we're working on another video right now, and it's called Age Matters. And the whole purpose, whether it's the teenager themselves or middle schooler or the parent or the TikTok influencer, just to explain to the world why age of first use matters. Mm. Because we have not done a good job. We know that this is like literally the biggest risk factor for individuals, and yet no one knows anything about it. So uh, we have a cartoon and animation, which is probably going to be very dorky and not cool for my own teenagers <laughs> or yours, right? That might that might work for us, the you know sort of middle-aged parents. But if influencers, if celebrities, if musicians, if others, you know, could team up and help us reinforce these messages, it would be better for all of our kids. Yeah, I'm sure you see sometimes like this information comes out and. When you're a person that's passionate or interested in it, it seems so game changing or life changing. It's like all the stuff on ACEs and, and learning about all that and saying, wow, this is such great, useful information. And then it just feels like nobody really cares other than the people that are trying to do the work, which isn't getting it out there fast enough. Billy, I don't know if you feel this way, too, but I, I'm actually and I always like to think I know so much about this topic, but. The age of first use thing is almost blowing my mind a little bit because I hear so many times and I know anecdotal evidence is not scientific research, nor does it you know, alleviate or combat its relevance whatsoever. But many times I've heard people talk about not using into their 20s, later 20s, even 30s at times. And so I, I just I've heard that so many times and now I'm looking at it and I'm like, well, did they mean they didn't use harder drugs until then? And they like drank at nine or something like maybe there was more to it than I heard. But that's just really interesting. I, I didn't even know that the age of first use was so relevant for how overtaking of the brain it, it does. Do you know anything about that? No, other than, yeah, yeah. watching some videos recently. <laughs> so. When you start using alcohol or drugs and even including nicotine before the age of 18, you have a one in four chance of developing a substance use disorder. Wow. When you push back the use of all of that, it's not just hard, drug, hard drugs, it's all of that or intermittency, not as frequent use, but the, the longer you push that back, if you start using after the age of 18, you have a one in 25 chance of developing a substance wow. use disorder. Hmm. So you go from one in four to one in 25. That's incredible. Yeah, that is incredible. And you know what? Now that you've said that, it almost sounds really familiar that I've heard that statistic. And I, I had a debate for it, which was a debate we don't really know the answer for. But it's, are we really preventing more people from using by doing that? Or is it the other way around that people that do hold off that long in their life weren't really destined to need that coping addiction in the first place? You know what I mean? Like people who were in dire need of a coping mechanism and trauma related experiences led them to something they needed that earlier. And that's why they are the one in four that did it before they were 18. There's no argument for that. I just, I remember hearing that and wondering. I, I would be the counter argument to that, right? So I was homeless and then in foster care system and then raised by my maternal grandparents who still had addiction in the home, but it just was a slower burn than uh, my parents and being out on the streets. So it was tricky, right? All of these, these situations were tricky. So definitely needed coping mechanisms. Um, I definitely had trauma. I have a fairly large ACEs score. Um, and it's 
one that you don't want a larger score on. That's for <laughs> for sure. You won though. Yeah. The week we did the aces, we took the tests online. Him and I both. So yeah. Was it good? Yeah, wasn't good. Yeah, mine's not good either. But I, I think I turned out okay, and I, I have generations of substance use disorder before me. But the biggest protective factor that I added on my seesaw, like if you look at sort of risk and protection as like a seesaw, I had a lot of risk factors that sort of made it sort of go to that side. As did my mom, and as did my grandma, and as did my great grandma, and you know all these generations before. But the biggest protective factor that I plopped on that to help counterbalance it is I did not use anything, including alcohol, till the age of 21. Now, the beauty of that is that not only did I protect my brain, and when you see the brain scans comparing like ages, guys, it's amazing. A 14-year-old brain is like this, like, when you do the, the PET scan of it, it's like vibrant. It's like like looking at like modern art. It has like orange and yellow and green and there's a little bit of blue, but it, it's it's this rainbow of all this fast developing plastic and amazing growth. And you can learn things more quickly then, but you can also be hurt more quickly. And then you do a brain scan of the three of us and it's blue. It's just boring blue. There's none of those colors. There's none of this sort of um, rapid growth pieces. Um, and that stage of the brain development is really what makes that adolescent brain so vulnerable. So I had all these, you know, risk factors. I didn't, you know, use alcohol till my 21st birthday. Um, and my grandmother was the one who reinforced that. She told me when I was really young that alcohol was no different from the drugs that were killing my parents. And that made an impression. So I, I sort of set it out. I wasn't going to, to drink a drop of alcohol until I was legally of age. And it wasn't just that I protected my brain in that growth period. It was I had to make it till 21 years old through all of high school, which is not always fun, and all of college, which is not always fun either and stressful. I had to do all of that building coping skills that had nothing to do with alcohol or drugs. Right. right. So it's not just brain protection. It forces you in a different way to build a different toolbox of coping skills. And when you have alcohol and drugs in that toolbox, you will use them because they work and it's efficient. Right. Not, not as well in the long term, but it feels like it works in that moment. Um, and particularly if you have a lot of trauma, a lot of aces, a lot of difficulty at home, when you use those more and you have that trauma or genetic, that makes it sort of fast burning and develop into an addiction even quicker. So I protected my brain, but I also built health and coping mechanisms to this day. I, I'm careful about alcohol use because um, though my brain is boring and blue, um, I still think I need to be mindful of that just because of my family history. And a lot of us that um, have families that have struggled with addiction feel the same. But the other thing is, it's not my go-to when I need to cope. I want to go talk to my counselor, right? I've, I've, I believe in mental health therapy, and it's so important, particularly when you've gone through trauma. Um, but I want to talk to my friend. I want to go for a walk. You go exercise. Um, when you delay that onset, um, it has the additive effect of helping you to build healthier coping skills. And while I would sit here with intellectual people and debate the chicken or egg of that research, I would take that research and say, hey, I'm going to make sure my kids don't use till after 18 because <laughs> right. it sounds better. <laughs> right. It's the best information I got right now, honestly. Yeah. Right. I, yeah. I wouldn't argue with it in practice whatsoever. Yeah, for sure. So on the treatment side of things, what right now in, in your work do you feel like is the, the biggest barriers to getting people into treatment? Like, and I know it's kind of hard to answer on a national level, so I'll kind of set it up. Like in our area, we're a fairly rural area. I think we have one state 
insurance sponsored rehab that covers like half the state of Maryland seemed to be like 15, 20 years ago. If you wanted to get like immediate access to treatment, your best option would be to go to the local hospital, tell them you were mentally going to kill yourself or something like that, where they would check you in. And then you could kind of get medically stabilized and get pushed on to treatment once you were kind of, you know, in the system, so to speak. Currently, that's not what's happening in our county. I think currently, if you go to the local hospital and you tell them that you're struggling with a a substance use, um, unfortunately, and this isn't to bash our local hospital too much, but they kind of push you back out the door with a list of treatment providers and they don't seem to be connecting that bridge to treatment at the moment. Is that an area where we really need improvement? It seems to have gotten worse rather than it's gotten better. Yeah, I think we need to improve how we access treatment. There's some states and counties who've done an amazing job. In Vermont, they set up this like hub and spoke system where you come into a hub and then they basically design your treatment plan with all of these sort of interconnected systems. And it's not just medication-assisted treatment or traditional um, treatment. It's also recovery support. And, you know, I, I feel like we've also backslid a little bit in this kind of all you need is a medication and you should be done and cured. And that's not how this disease works. It's multidimensional. We really like sort of the five dimensions sort of model. You need to have that spiritual side. You need to have purpose in your life. You need to take care of the basics. Um, It's really hard to get better if you don't have a home and a job and income and a way to take care of yourself and take care of your kids. You do need the clinical pieces, but there's so many things that you need and, you know, helping and building plans for the whole person. Um, is really critical, and we need to do a better job of understanding that. There is no quick fix with this, and this is a chronic health condition that needs to um, have maintenance and care over the long term. I think in terms of how it works, when we train families right, and patients themselves on how to advocate for themselves and their family members, which is why we've, we've put out a whole project on this, I think we can change the trajectory. We can start the process sooner. Um, we can make sure we build all those components that we need. But I agree, we need to, to do a much better job. For any of your listeners, we do have um, counselors that we employ that helps both patients and families figure out the, the best locations for them to seek help um, in their own community. You can call 833-301-HELP and uh, um, our folks will assist you because we need to we need to make this a less lonely process when people are trying to navigate a deadly disease. Yeah, you mentioned that you were working with the drug czar and then didn't know where to send individuals that were close to you when they needed treatment. And I believe I, I listened to one of the recent drug czars. It might have been the one under President Obama who stated that his son needed treatment and he didn't know where to send him for treatment. So for family members, how do they go about finding a mode of treatment that works and not you know, run into somebody who says, hey, we're going to lick frogs in the basement four times a day and and your kid will definitely get better. Like, how do they find actual treatments that are says there's just no regulation? So how do they know when they're going somewhere? What would you recommend? So we put out a list of sort of 15 criteria for quality treatment just to help people navigate to make sure it's the right treatment. And I think you need to you need to learn. You have to figure out what is residential versus IOP versus an OTP. You know, <laughs> I remember when I was going through this, and mind you, and 20 years ago, I was I was a, a younger woman, and you know, I didn't really know how to do this. I also had no money, so all of these places that you know are so 
profit oriented were not going to help me whatsoever. But when, when you have a different way of approaching this and you're armed with information, there's nothing more powerful than a worried mom or dad, right? And if you give the right information into the hands of more families earlier, um, I think we can we can advocate and and demand changes on how we're we're pr provided services and find resources for this illness. That's what my my long term hope is. In the interim, you know, there is a federal database. It takes some sleuthing to go through what's open and what isn't, what's appropriate. You also like you need to start with an assessment. You need to find some place that's going to help your, you or your loved one figure out what you need that's appropriate for you instead of, you know, diagnosing yourself uh, just based on what's on Google and what you can afford or, you know, what looks really fancy. This really needs to be an assessment because our treatment for opioid use disorder is very different from our treatment for stimulant use disorder versus alcohol use disorder. And we need to make sure that healthcare providers and those that are trained are helping us to build those care plans instead of us just trying to figure it out on our own or figure out who will take us just out of a need and, and feeling desperate. Yeah, John Oliver did a really good segment about the status of treatment centers in America. And one of the points he made was when you look up reviews or ratings for these treatment centers, usually like the top three ratings or reviews, at least as that's as far as his you know research went, was those websites were all owned by the treatment center itself. And it's like, well, that's useless if you're trying to find out more information. It's a good, profitable machine, but it doesn't necessarily focus on patient outcomes, which we need to change. Right. And, you know, the other thing is we have this idea that you need a bed, that you have to go away someplace to get better. And I don't think that's true. I think there's lots of ways to get the treatment and help that you need. And sometimes building the resources and support where you live and having that built up will be so much healthier for you in the long run. And let's not forget that for everyone, there is some type of mutual aid support group, whether it's AA or NAA or Heroin Anonymous or Smart Recovery or Celebrate Recovery or Dharma or Refuge. I, there's so many, there's like 30 different brands. So whatever works for you, there is a support group meeting nearby and it's free. And I really think um, sort of a, a gift and a needed resource, like a safety net for all of those that are struggling with this disease. And we need to access that more. And if you need layers of treatment and support in addition to that, and maybe you decide not the support group meeting, you decide on counseling instead, but this needs to be a multi-layered approach. There is not a quick fix for a substance use disorder. You need to develop a care plan that supports you as in a whole individual. Yeah. That's one of the interesting things Jason have, and I have been exploring. So we're both from NA, you know, that's kind of where we found recovery and part of this podcast. And I think my education over the last couple of years has been research into other modes of recovery. You know, when I first got clean, it was like, this is the only way it's abstinence based. That's all that works. The rest of that's bullshit, you know, and, and whatever. And now starting to really understand like it is really a, almost an end like there's not a one size fits all to recovery. Each individual has their own needs. And then even if I go to 12 step recovery, maybe some counseling or some therapy is going to be in addition to that. Like I don't need to be stuck in one form and that's it. Or to think that that's the only thing that works as we've had different people on from some different fellowships to talk about different modes of recovery. I found it really beneficial for me, you know, as a person in the recovery community, it's like we almost join our own little teams and, and sort of want to poo-poo the other, <laughs> the other teams, like, well, we're the really the best way. And finding out that that's not necessarily true, <laughs> you know, takes a little bit of 
ego deflation. But I do like the idea of the hub and spoke idea that you talked about earlier. I know as being involved with the community-based organization Voices of Hope here in Cecil County, it doesn't seem like that was the approach of our local health department. I don't mean to bash them. So in our area, before you know, we really had a community-based organization doing this work, you would go to the local health department and they would seem to push you off to the one state treatment center but the access to services was really limited it was like they were only open monday through friday from eight to five and then even then you had to hope that there was a counselor open or available or willing to talk to like you know say my parents or or a family that would come in looking for treatment and as you said sometimes that window of opportunity is really small you know a person's going to decide Maybe it's not Monday through Friday, 8 to 5, when they're looking for treatment options. That's when everybody wants to get clean. <laughs> right. Or being told when you call the number that, well, you have to come in on Monday morning. Well, by Monday morning, I had changed my mind. I didn't want to go to treatment anymore. I wanted to go to treatment Friday night when I had just got arrested, not right. you know Monday morning now that it had been three days and I was in withdrawal. <laughs> and what are some things we can do on a... I guess, a state level or a a medical level to address some of those needs? Like, how do we get 24-hour access to services? So in Maryland and in other states, you have an opioid use disorder. They've started induction of buprenorphine in the emergency room immediately, which gives you sort of that immediate access point for medication-assisted treatment. I think we, it's not consistent, right? So we need to take these like amazing pilot sites and locations that are doing it right. And we need to take it to scale, right? So we're doing a great job um, at Yale because the Yale emergency room has been inducting this. We're doing a great job at a few hospitals in Baltimore. We're doing a great job in this county or this city or this state, Um, but figuring out what those systems look like, which should be immediate care when you need it. It shouldn't be fail first policies or prior authorization policies for payers. It shouldn't be a oh, great, here's your list, come back at, you know, four days from now when you've sort of missed that opportunity. We need to to change the system to make sure it's immediate and it's evidence-based and it's individualized to the person, their severity level and their type of use disorder instead of this one size fits all. I think we can achieve that. We're making progress, like I said, in some places, but we need to take it everywhere. As a civilization, I don't think we do very well with taking what works well in one place and then taking it to other places. I mean, I'm just looking at Chick-fil-A's drive through <laughs> And for some reason, McDonald's and Burger King can't make it work that way. Like Chick-fil-A is super functional in their drive through And yet McDonald's and Burger King can't seem to pick up on whatever it is they do right and then take it to their own establishment. So I don't I just don't think we do that well. I agree. Well, as a big Chick-fil-A fan, I have to say, we should definitely advocate and demand for Chick-fil-A level services instead of anything hodgepodge or less than that. And I, I think we need to raise our voices and demand better care for all the people we love. I had a question going back to the, you're talking about the age of first use. We did our, our most recent episode, actually. It happened to be on smartphone, internet technology, slash social media addiction, uh, kind of all of the above, and, and how these devices and the notification systems, and it all tends to rewire your brain from an early age and, and really kind of get you caught up in the process. Is there any research or, or anything to your knowledge that can demonstrate that the fact that we're going to have these devices in our hands much earlier in our life is almost going to set us up for 
kind of a similar situation with that age of first use like because that age of first use you're saying it's programming that wild still growing brain and so i'm wondering if these smartphone addictions and having them in our hands earlier is actually going to make it worse it's going to reprogram our brains from an even earlier age to be ready for that instantaneous instant gratification relief of stress or whatever it is we're looking for yeah that's a really good question i haven't seen any data or studies that have come out on that yet but I mean, if, if we know that it activates the dopamine process in your brain, similar to um, using substances and can mess with the reward center, which is what addiction does. So it does make me worry. And I think we should be looking into it and investigating and making sure we keep all these amazing adolescent brains as safe as we can. Mm. I swear every week, I'm always astonished to meet the amazing people and, and things that are being done to combat this disease. And then I also leave the podcast thinking, oh my God, we're all going to die. <laughs> it's, like, it's hard to fight life. I mean, and that's what it seems like we have to do. Yeah, I know. I think we have to work to keep each other motivated because you, know, you have to like think about this. This isn't like some new disease that just like plopped on. It isn't like coronavirus or this is even sort of like the emergence of HIV AIDS and, you know, in sort of the eighties and figuring out how to respond to it. We have hundreds of years, generations of misinformation and mythology around alcohol use disorder and addiction. So in a way we have to like break down all of this ridiculousness and rebuild from scratch. So we have our work cut out for us, but we got a lot of us in this world, in this space, whether we wanted to be here or not. We are a larger fraternity than um, than people realize. And I think if we figure out those points of light that work, those areas of innovation and of things that are being done right, and we replicate it and we demand and unite, I, I do think we can change this. I'm almost 30 years doing this work. I started as a teenager and um community organization out in Southern California. And here I am 44 years old and still doing this work. And I still believe we can change it. I still believe that we can re-engineer how we address this. I think we can prevent it better. I think we can treat it um, far better. And I think we can be more loving and supportive of those in recovery. I think we can tackle stigma. It's going to take us a long time, but I think we can do it. We have more science now. If we break it down and understand it better and keep creating a, a better crew, I might be overly optimistic. And some might wonder why at the 30 years in, I'm still so hopeful, but I, I believe we can do better. And I will say, I, I do think things are moving in the right direction. It just feels painfully slow compared to the need. <laughs> but, you know, and watching it over time, it feels like things are getting better, at least again, in our local rural community. You know, nowadays, at least through what I see the work at Voices, I don't directly work with the clients, but I am around the facility a lot. And I see people come in and, you know, they come in and they want access to treatment. And most of the time, you know, they're able to get them a bed and get them there within a really, really short amount of time. And that's traditionally not the way that I know it used to work in this county. So it does feel like some work is making progress. progress. <laughs> yeah. yeah, progress. It is amazing when we look at these locations or programs that are doing great and we, and we imagine that that can be broadened 
and more communities sort of responding this way, then I think it's a really big difference and a fundamental change on how we how we treat addiction. I also believe that it's us. It's us with lived experience that need to be you. You all are part of the solution here. You use your experience, your lived experience to you know, educate others to bring more people um, out and talking about their experiences and advocating for change and supporting people they love. I'm not in recovery, but I love people in recovery. Um, my parents struggle with this. So I try to use my experience to help others. And we bind those together. That's where I think this could be really powerful. One other area. So you had mentioned your experience as a child growing up with addicts and things like that. In our current treatment model, if you want to call it that. It seems like we really do just address the addict. We don't typically address families or specifically children. What are some areas that you know of that we could improve in those? I mean, I always think specifically kids because they're still malleable and we can hopefully break these cycles we see of addiction. But what are some areas we could do to improve treatment for children of addicts? So there's some amazing programs that are out there that are starting to sort of spread and have more data about them and see more replication. One of my favorite ones is um, up in um, Essex, Massachusetts, started by the local DA there. They used asset forfeiture funds to create a program in middle schools for kids with high ACEs scores, largely because of um, substance use disorder at home, opioid overdoses at home, and it they have mental health therapy there after school. They provide you know after school snack and dinner. They uh, brought in washers and dryers so you could have clean clothes to wear to school if that wasn't something that you had access to at home. Um, they have art therapy and programs. We work really closely with some of the staff there, and I think their work is inspirational. But we know who the kids are who are struggling. We know who the kids are who are like me. And home isn't always a safe place. And so they're providing and building um, the services. And the other thing I love about this program was started by the um, Essex County District Attorney, uh, Jonathan Blodgett, is they don't out the kids and say, hey, you got identified because of addiction in the home. It's called a leadership program. So they let you keep your dignity, um, but they give you the access to the services, mental health. And then you form those peer attachments, like similar to what we see in in support groups. But this is a a support group in in effect of kids who come from similar backgrounds and experiences who can support each other over the long haul. Of the kids that started this seven years ago, they have had no criminal justice or juvenile justice involvement. Um, They're starting to have their first kids go to college and be accepted. So we're seeing these long-term outcomes by having a relatively small dose of services and support for kids who have high ACEs scores. Similarly, in Kentucky, they started a program that when a um, family is identified by child services, instead of removal of the child immediately, they begin a care plan for everyone in the household, not just the parent with a substance use disorder. It's called the Kentucky Start Program. Um, And both the parent uh, goes into treatment, um, has a visiting home nurse if that's necessary, um, has services and therapy for the children. And it really is about providing treatment where you need it. And, you know, we all love our kids. And when you're struggling with addiction, to have the opportunity to use that as a lever to engage in treatment, to keep custody of your children and have the whole family get better, I think it's a really beautiful program. So there's so many communities that are doing amazing things to deal with children impacted by parental addiction. And if we learn from that, and this should be something that is mandatory and necessary for 
every single county in America. How did they miss out on calling that Kentucky Family Care so they could have been KFC? <laughs> Missed opportunities. <laughs> They've had some good branding. Yeah, just piggyback on that uh, <laughs> name recognition, right? Yeah. So, and this might be a kind of big question, so you can generalize it as as much as you feel like you need to for your own time constraints. But if they named Jessica the drug czar for the federal government tomorrow, like what would be your steps in in setting up like the ideal treatment system, the ideal way to deal with the addiction epidemic we're seeing right now? Hmm. Well, just off the cuff, I think that there should be a place in every community, in every county, but maybe even more than that, depending on the size of a county, to go to 24 hours a day, seven days a week to get an assessment for yourself or a loved one with an immediate access to care that is individualized to that person. And the care plan should not be 28 days. This is not a 28-day illness, though we watch movies that suggest that it is so. It really is the first five years of treatment and recovery that's critical. So I think each care plan should be five years in length, and there should be training for families and their whole support systems. They know how to be a part of that and be a helpful part of that that treatment plan. Because there's a lot of misinformation, even among our families. They don't like MAT or they don't want to really do this or you have all these preconceived notions. And we know that the patients who have their families helping and engaged in their care have better outcomes with their treatment outcomes. So that's what I would do. I would invest the money. I would make sure that you either get insurance or whatever coverage you need and that it's appropriate to you. It's not something that your Google AdWords placement means that's how you find where you're going to go. It's really about healthcare and it's outcomes based. So much of it is just a bunch of nonsense of like all these success stories and oh, we have a 97.5% success rate. Well, just because you put that on your website doesn't mean it's true. This is not what patients who deal with diabetes and cancer and heart disease expect. They expect that there will be evidence-based care. There will be consequences if they're physicians and any system who is claiming to treat these illnesses if they don't follow the best standards of care. And that is not what happens here. You have programs that will charge all this money and they put a video and a VCR and walk out for two hours. That is not evidence-based care for an illness that is life-threatening. So better standards, enforcement of standards, a place for every person seeking help to go to um, that is connected to healthcare and all of the systems that you need in, in that spoke over a five-year period of time and beyond that. That's amazing. Just off the cuff. Yeah. <laughs> Just to tie into that a little bit, Addiction Policy Forum also has the Connections app, which that is sort of to keep people connected after they leave treatment or get out of treatment. Is that correct? Yeah. Or for folks who don't go through traditional treatment, so many more people don't go through traditional treatment than we realize. It really is our AA network and NA network across America is is what treatment is. And you know that outcomes of doing 90 meetings in 90 days are about the same as going into residential care. Hmm. Really? We don't really tell people that, do we? Because that's free. Or maybe it's 30 bucks if you're going to put a dollar in the basket on your way out, which is good manners. But even if you don't have that, you have access to AA and NA and Celebrate and Smart and all of them. The 90 and 90 framework is a similar outcomes going into residential treatment. So we do have access. We just need to teach people how they can better use it. Yeah. And that's funny. That's I, I didn't go to inpatient treatment this time that I got clean. I've been in and out of treatment a bunch of times. I went inpatient 
two or three times. And this time I just decided one day that I wanted to get clean and started going to meetings and that was it. (laughs) So it didn't take inpatient treatment for me this time. The science behind meetings, it's so interesting to me that we, anyone who can be reluctant or critical of support groups, you know, just send them to me and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll educate, I'll educate them to my best. But we know that as a species, humans are social creatures, right? We, we are social by nature. So when you start to build friendships and linkages to other individuals who are sober in A or NA, what you're doing is enforcing attachment. You now belong to a community that's healthy. It's giving you identity that's different from a using identity and pro-social engagement, meaning that you're socializing and creating these, pro- these social attachments to others um, that are important. And we know from some of the science, there's just some really awesome studies that have come out over the last couple of years that when you start to map out your social structures. And so those that are still engaging with friends that are still using um, or engaging friends or families that are using and don't have these uh, sober networks and, and positive social structures, they don't do as well, right? So this is by science and design, something so necessary for successful recovery and, and wellness. And so we shouldn't undermine it or miss the fact that this is like a clear, like step one that people need to, to do and they don't realize and all these people have never um, uh, experienced the, the disease or don't sort of think through it. Can you imagine today if, if I couldn't talk to any of my existing friends or family because this wasn't necessarily a healthy thing for me, rebuilding those networks is such a hard job that individuals do. And AANA SMART, the whole support group system is so beautiful at achieving that. And it It's a critical component of finding health and wellness. One of the things that I think might be an issue with that, at least in the current way that I see it, and this could be totally my own view, when I got to NA, 80% of the meeting had six months or more. And I was coming in and I fit into this environment like you were talking about of healthy people doing a different lifestyle. And I felt really a part of, and it, it inspired me to want to be a part of that. And yet I'm seeing this huge influx of recovery houses in certain neighborhoods and where it becomes that entire neighborhood, all the meetings of the week are 75% or more people with six months or less. And so really they're becoming a part of the community, but the community looks more like people who haven't established themselves as in recovery and aren't working steps and aren't really participating in the program. And like, I think that's one of the challenge to the 12 step programs at this current venture is what do we do with this huge influx of people that is skewing the community to less clean time, less recovery, and the community's a little less structured? So when people even do like identify and compare in and become part of it, they're just becoming part of recently clean people that they were just hanging out with on the street a week ago. Interesting. You know, in a programmatic lens, it's sort of a uh, how do you ensure fidelity? Because the model, like having fidelity to the model or being true to the model, means that you have access to individuals who have a lot of time in the program to mentor and engage those that are new or have less time. So, what are the effects of the programs when you change that equation? Um, and is, is there any way that when you have a huge influx, how do you solve for that? I don't know the answers to any of that, but I think that we will continue to have an influx of more people because this is the backbone of recovery in America, right? Mm-hmm. We don't have anything better right now. I hope that we don't build things to replace it, but we build things that 
complemented and are more supportive and integrated into support group structures nationwide. But in the interim, I think that we need to be as supportive as we can to these programs to figure out how they solve for this. There'll be more people and the fidelity to the, the program design is probably going to continue to be a little tricky because of we don't have anything else. We need to know, we need to validate and honor the science behind it and the fact that it works and that it means that treatment and recovery services are available to really everyone and we shouldn't discount that. Yeah. And I think we've been seeing a little bit of that more and more of of how the 12-step recovery model, there is really, like you said, some evidence-based or science-based principles behind why it works and things that it does. I mean, we always called it a progressive disease, whereas I think on your website, it described it as like degrees of severity. And it's it's the same thing. It's just two different ways of talking about it. So it's interesting to see how the science sort of matches up with that recovery model. Yeah, yeah. It does get worse over time as a most illnesses, right? right? It's hard to think of an illness that doesn't get worse when you don't treat it or address it. But again, we have to break down all of this silliness and misinformation that exists in our space that has been built up over time. Definitely great having yeah, you on. And the website great. is addictionpolicy.org. And then is, the book yeah. is Navigating Addiction and Treatment, a Guide for Families. Okay. Yeah. And could I get that 800 number again, the helpline? 833-301-HELP. So yeah, people, check that out, man. It's super valuable information. I got a lot out of learning about this. I think there's always more to be gained and more to be learned, especially as Jessica mentioned, the prevention. That's the thing, man, the prevention. Let's keep this from happening. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Jessica. Yes, thank you very much. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Nice to meet you both. Keep up the good work. (laughs) Bye. Man, so what a great conversation with Jessica. I think there's just not enough resources for people who struggle with addiction. There's next to zero resources for families and all that just seems so important. Yeah, and it's nice to have someone with those political connections that's fighting that part of the fight. You know, I mean, I hate to say as smart as I think I am, I don't know how to navigate politics and actually changing policies and laws and, you know, those areas. It's nice to have someone in that arena that's not just some politician on the Hill, but that has a vested interest in people's health and well-being. Yeah, absolutely. So we got what I think is one of the biggest compliments we've gotten so far. There was a thing on Reddit and it was just like, what podcast did you listen to that you no longer listen to and why? And so people were putting all these podcasts and I just made a comment because I like to be silly. I keep coming back on and checking for our podcast just so that I know somebody listens because (laughs) they had to have listened to stop listening. And so some guy was like, hey, if you put your link up here, I'll listen. And I was like, well, you must be really bored. Sure. Here it is. (laughs) And he wrote back and said, I'm not someone who is in recovery, but I've been slowly listening. I'm almost done with the recent episode on Narcan. I found it pretty informative and interesting, and none of the hosts are boring, which is nice. I'll keep listening. And I was like, wow, (laughs) I don't know. I felt really, that felt really nice to my little tender heart that takes inspiration from that. Yes. Thank you very much. So thank you to Big Goopy on reddit oh thank you big goopy i fucking love reddit (laughs) names and handles we will bid you adieu and see you again next week i think we're talking about step 12 which is hey a whole year of steps we did it we (laughs) did it all right yeah visit addictionpolicy.org check out their stuff 
tell people who need to hear it that where they can get the resources, friends of addicts or alcoholics, anybody who needs to know. Get this information out there and ways to help, ways to help your kids, ways to prevent this, whatever it takes. If you enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to share it with people you think might benefit from the conversation. Look us up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to join the conversation also and share your ideas with us. We'd love to hear it.